In April, Governor Whitmer signed an executive order creating the Michigan Coronavirus Task Force on Racial Disparities. The task force is acting in an advisory capacity to the governor and studies the causes of racial disparities in the impact of COVID-19 and recommends actions to immediately address such disparities and the historical and systemic inequities that underlie them. And there are two Spartans on the task force. Deborah Ferholden is an epidemiologist and the Associate Dean for Public Health Integration at Michigan State University and the director of the Flint Center for Health Equity Solutions. And Deborah, it's great to welcome you to the program. Thanks for having me, Russ, and happy to be here. And Randolph Rash, better known as Randy, is a professor and dean of the Michigan State University College of Nursing. Randy, good to have you back. Russ, good to be back with you. So, Randy, why don't you start frame this issue for us? So I think um, probably the first thing in terms of a task force is that at the State of the State address, uh, the governor outlined a task force for addressing morbidity and mortality of African-American women and children in childbirth, around issues of childbirth. And she appointed uh, Dr. Audrey Gregory, who's the chief executive order officer for the Detroit Medical Center and myself, to co-lead that task force. And as we were beginning to um, work on that, the coronavirus pandemic hit and the governor appointed the task force that you just mentioned. And that one's essentially led by uh, Lieutenant Governor Gilchrist. As she was putting folks together for that, and I had been in contact because of the previous contact, uh, previous appointment, I, I said, well, we have some, I have some colleagues um, that you should talk to. And Dr. Furholden was one of them. She's always saying I'm dragging her into trouble. <laughs> but I think that the issue, what happened was that as we were looking at um, the coronavirus and the pandemic in Michigan, we recognized that African-Americans who are 14% of our population were overrepresented in terms of infection, and the COVID-19 disease and deaths at about 40%. And so, um, and I'll let Deborah tell about the, where we are in terms of Michigan and the data and all those kinds of things. But what the governor wanted to do is to be proactive in getting testing available in the African-American community and getting them into getting our, you know, those fellow citizens into treatment, not just for, um, coronavirus, COVID-19, but because we're also overrepresented with chronic diseases of um, heart disease, diabetes, hypertension, those kinds of things, which puts you at higher risk. And we're also overrepresented in in areas of of, uh, what I would call financial, um, financial risk as the CDC looks at in terms of, of, of those of indicators that affect health, African-Americans are heavier hit by those. So what we were looking at is getting testing readily available and at testing, connecting people to their primary care providers if they didn't have primary care providers, finding primary care providers for them, and also if they didn't have a health plan to cover to do that. And so uh, the, rec- the work group out of the task force that we're both on is primary care connections. And we've really been partnering with the Department of Health and Human Services. The other task force is looking at testing strategies and we're looking at the primary care connections, but working closely with them 
so we're advisory to the governor, but what I had forgotten was that we're especially advisory to DHHS. And so that's been a, a pretty good partnership because they've let us know what their capacities are. And we've been helpful in terms of the recommendations we make that help them, um, I wouldn't say up their game, but provides them some additional thinking about, creative thinking about other ways of doing it. I would also say that one of the one of the groups within uh, that that we're concerned about are those people who might fall through the cracks. Those are folks who are undocumented for whatever reason, uh, folks who've just gotten out of prison, folks who just want to lie low in general, and who aren't networked into the community to get access to testing. And how do you have folks in the community that they trust who can get the message to them and to work on ways of getting them connected to primary care services as well if, if they don't have those. So that's kind of an overview of what the task force is doing. And, and as I say, a little unusual because usually a task force studies the problem, makes recommendations and moves on. This because of its, the nature of the pandemic has been an ongoing active collaboration to fine tune and get things done, at, particularly in southeastern Michigan, because we know it's gonna roll on across the state. So how do we scale up what we're doing already to make sure that we're ahead of the game as it starts moving across the state? But Deborah, what would you add about to what Randy said in your role on the task force? The thing that I appreciate the most about the task force is one, the the work was already afoot and Randy pointed to that there was already work to deal with um, racial, ethnic and other vulnerable and marginalized population disparities, right? So we've seen the biggest contrast in African-Americans in Michigan versus the, you know, sort of population at large. But I think the thing that Randy pointed to that I want to underscore is that we know we've got a lot of vulnerable and marginalized populations. Michigan has a very large rural population. We've got enclaves of um, Arab Americans, and we've got a, a, a fairly large number of, you know, very vibrant, active citizens in our community who don't have full citizenship, right? We call uh, this population undocumented. I don't really like those, you know, sort of terms because I don't like to further marginalize people with language. But the reality is we know that we have a lot of groups and a lot of uh, segments of our population in Michigan that are at excess risk for not getting basic primary care and preventive services. And what we've seen during COVID-19 is an amplification effect. So COVID-19 was not the beginning of health disparities for Michigan or the nation and unveiled some very important underlying both social and political determinants of health and given us an opportunity to identify targets for intervention so we can have people experience health and access to healthcare as a right and not a privilege that's based on, you know, economics or race or ethnicity or, you know, any other type of status. And so, you know, my role really on the task force, and I think why Randy brought me in was one, I believe in the power of data and the data are very telling. The data is not the end all be all, but it does give us an opportunity to fearlessly confront where are we falling short? You know, I do think, and it, it has been independent of who's been at the helm 
of the state. I don't think there's an overarching sentiment that, you know, we're okay with some people being more healthy than others. But the question is, how do we bridge that gap? And so I think the task force specifically that was created around COVID, as well as the work that predated that, was about doing the work to make sure that health is something that is available and accessible and, and that everybody has opportunities for optimal health, independent of their status or standing in our society and in our, in our state. And the thing I would add to that is, um, as Deborah pointed out, these disparities uh, predated the coronavirus and the pandemic. I started my career, I'm from Michigan originally, but I've spent all my adult life in the South until I returned uh, five years as dean of college. But I started as a, health, a public health nurse in, in Harvard, Michigan. And so many of the, the disparities that we're seeing now, we saw in, in uh, Benton Harbor at the time. I think that we were uh, maybe doing a better job of addressing them at the time. Um, and so I think we have the opportunity in the state uh, to relook at that history and look at the ways that we address these issues and working within communities and the different communities within larger communities. One, to establish trust. And that establishment of trust is a key piece because if you look at folks who are marginalized, they don't even trust the health system necessarily. So having that relationship goes a far way to getting people involved in services, both preventive, but in treatment services as well. And so I think one of the larger pieces will be that we're working on really is as we do the work with the coronavirus and the pandemic, and as we do the work for maternal child health and better outcomes, we're looking at a larger system issue. And I think the other struggle we have to think about is how healthcare is changing. So we right now as healthcare providers, um, nurses, physicians, all everyone involved, really thinking about patients coming to us. That tipping point is changing. So we have to take services to patients, regardless of their socioeconomic status. I think we're a little behind in taking it to marginalized populations, but part of that is how uh, they're integrated into the systems, whether they're using a phone. You know, one of the ways that you, and all three of us are prob probably deal with this when we're dealing with our own provision of health, we're interacting with a website or a phone or whatever. And I tell you, sometimes when I have to go on the website to deal with things, it's more than I can deal with. And I'm like, okay, let me just shut this down and I'll come back later. So if you think about folks who don't have access to that readily, it's even more of a barrier. And what I think one of the things we're looking at in, in both of these ways that we're beginning to address these issues is a larger issue of how to make healthcare accessible and remove barriers. And like I say, some of us who are not necessarily marginalized in our everyday lives, we have some of those barriers as well. I, I think the other thing is we have to really look at where people are and meet them where they are. So, you know, if we talk about people um, as, as, and I, I agree with Deborah, I don't like the undocumented language because it others people. But if we look at folks, um, look at folks who are homeless, right? And then think about the people that we wouldn't necessarily consider homeless, but they are homeless. So they go from couch to couch to couch. 
And we, if we look at how our citizens are living that we're focused on right now, they even struggle to implement the CDC uh, guidelines for social distancing. So you might have an apartment of a, or a house where more people are living than you would normally expect. And if they don't have adequate income, if somebody has symptoms and has to be isolated, how do you do that? So one of the things that the primary care work group is also looking at is who are those trusted members in the community who can work with an understanding of how people are actually living and three, think creatively how to do social distancing, how to do the hand washing, all of those things that we take for granted that are recommended by CDC that are a challenge with the folks that we're really trying to work with and, and really identify those folks who are trusted who can also really get that message across. So it's really a multi-dimensional, um, I always say holographic thing, multi and I mean by that a hologram that extends in time. <laughs> so that multi-dimensionality isn't just a point in time, you have to be thinking of it all, all through how you assess, plan, and how you work with folks. Well, let me ask you both, what are some of the outcomes you hope the task force delivers and what are some of the challenges and opportunities to get there? Yeah, well, I, I think just to piggyback on some of what Randy pointed to. So, so the first thing is we are, you know, bringing a depth of knowledge and understanding and it's why the task force includes so many different stakeholders who both have diversity and thought. The task force itself is also very diverse. You know, we do see these tremendous African-American um, disparities, but we know that that's not the only disparate and marginalized group. Randy talked a little bit about people who are unstably housed or who are living in overcrowded housing. We know we've got a lot of other vulnerable and high at-risk populations. People who have very valid fear about coming to access services because if you go to access primary care or if you go to access therapeutic or uh, uh, treatment-oriented care, but you are actually not a, a legal you know, resident or citizen of the US and you are in fear that coming to get care for yourself or family member could actually put your family in harm's way and you run risk of deportation or having family members whisked away. I think the strength of the task force is that we are very steeped in these issues. You know, Randy talked a little bit about people with technology barriers and technology barriers are not just related to economics. They're related to economics, but they're also related to age, access, and other types of um, issues. We haven't talked about children in foster care, for example. You know, so we know that we have all of these potentially vulnerable and high-risk populations. So I think the kind of metrics that we are interested in are first, what do we already know um, are the potential um, gaps in our system of care and then the underlying kind of social and political um, determinants of health. How do we then not just identify, but then mount, you know, what Randy is calling these very creative and innovative solutions that will give people a certain level of safety and security in knowing that it really is about preserving and protecting the health of our population such that people will come forward. So this notion of trusted and credible messengers is so important because it's people need to know and they need to hear these messages 
coming from people that they know and trust. And that, you know, thankfully, the, the task force includes members who've already been working with these populations. And so the first thing I think that we're doing is identifying who are our most uh, uh, vulnerable and marginalized. And it's not just about race, it's not just about economics, it's multifaceted. So the task force is first identifying where are our weak spots and then what are the kinds of interventions that we need to be implementing. And then of course our ultimate goal is to then improve access to care. And, and that's why the first two, I think, subcommittees that have emerged are around um, these primary care connections and then both the testing strategies, which are the first step, and then identifying how to do valid contact tracing, how to make sure that people are getting the kind of care that they need, are identified as a case, or are at risk. And so I think our ultimate metrics are to sort of level the playing field, if you will, for equal and equitable opportunities for health and healthcare access. And, and I'll follow up with that on another piece then that when the governor announced the um, task force for maternal child health morbidity and mortality, one of the things she called out was implicit bias. And so I don't want to lose that piece as well. And I think there are two things that uh, we are looking, that are, re are emerging in the task force that relates to that. One of them is health inequities and health disparities. And I, I would describe health inequities as the institutional, the, it's, expression, it's the expression of the institutional, um, I'm gonna say racism, but how we are structured and practiced so that it's a barrier in folks, um, how they're viewed when they come because the policies and procedures are implemented in a way that sort of prevents access to care or affects the quality of care. So we know that women and minorities often for the same um, entity, disease or, or health issue are treated differently. We also know that symptoms are expressed dis differently just based on culture and gender and all of those kinds of things. Well, if they are normed on, and initially a lot of the tests were normed on young white men who were medical students, you know, where's the diversity there? But so it's looking at the institutional policies and procedures and ways of behaving that either are a problem for access to care or if you get the access to care, a problem in terms of the kinds of quality of care. And then I would say the health disparities really gets to those social determinants of health, where marginalized people live, how living, how all of those things affect their health. Then when we get to implicit bias, what we're looking at is implicit in the sense that it might be hidden. So there are people who are deliberately biased, but I think most of our colleagues who are involved in healthcare and social issues are people of goodwill, and we all have our own blinders that we see people in a certain way and respond to them often unconsciously in a way that, um, that, that isn't helpful. And I, I tell a story about myself because when people talk about implicit bias, we, sound, we can be sounding like we're accusing people, but it's really an opportunity for growth and development. So in my 20s, and those of you who can't see me, I'm a black male. 
and clearly grew up as a black male. In my 20s, living in Nashville, Tennessee, I worked in the Tennessee Department of uh, Correction as a, as a family nurse practitioner. I remember walking down the street one evening and I saw a young man ahead of me, a black man, you know, probably about my age, and he was ahead of me and unconsciously I crossed the street. And when I crossed the street, I thought, why did you cross the street? And it re I realized because I was afraid of him. And I realized, and I thought to myself, you know who he is because that's how you grew up. I know that African-American males and men are loving, generous people, you know? It's not how we're often portrayed in the media, but I had to confront in myself that I was afraid of him and I knew better. And I wondered where that came from. I learned it. What's the song in um, uh, the Pacific show? How do you learn it? You have to be carefully taught. Um, so I realized that I learned it. I share the story because we all have implicit bias, but it's an opportunity to see what are our blinders and remove them. So one of the things the governor is interested in is how implicit bias um, affects how people access care and the kind of care they receive. And it's a great opportunity because like I said, most of us in healthcare are people of goodwill. We have a bias and we don't know it. And so I think, you know, part of it is how do we help people to see that without being demonized because, because of it, because that's not what it is. It's how do we grow and develop and become better in connecting with our fellow citizens to provide health care and access to care. So it relates to some of the other things we are talking about in terms of health disparities, health inequities. It's a key piece that we can actively work within organizations to try to change how it system, systemically does it and how we as individuals and groups practice it in a way that uh, we can do better at what we're doing. So I don't want to lose that piece. Yeah. Well, I, I want to thank you both for your important work on this Spartan's Will. And, and as we close, just what would you like us to keep in mind? Or is there anything important you'd like to add? I think that we have a, an opportunity before us. I've been telling people, and I've had the experience myself, that I feel like as a nation and as a, a global community, we are at our most vulnerable right now. You know, people, I think, have really just, this has taken a toll on everybody, independent of race, economics, gender, you know, uh, gender identity, and all of these things. We, we, this, this has just made us all very vulnerable. And, and in some respects has allowed us to understand, see, process, and digest, you know, and, and kind of almost be forced to confront um, the world that we live in. And, and fundamentally, we know that um, we don't live in a world where, you know, opportunity for health and growth and development is realized equally and equitably by all people. And so I just encourage people to, you know, really take this opportunity to, you know, be willing to look at where, because th the thing about privilege, privilege is a really funny thing. There are a lot of people who experience privilege who never asked for it. They are champions and believers in a world that works for everyone, in a world that's fair and equitable. And I think a lot of us have now had to confront that that is not actually the society that we live in. 
either you know at a national level or at a global level and 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 some of us sort of knew this and, and have had different lived experience that, experiences that speak to it, but now it's become inescapable. And so I really just encourage people to use this opportunity while we are in this you know, period of modified operations and people are at home and sort of you know, almost forced to digest and, and consume media and other things that are happening, not to, to, to be overwhelmed by it, but to really say, okay, like if I didn't see it or understand it before, I can see it and understand it now and really stand in what can I do and who can I be as a champion for a world that really works for everybody. You know, I think many of us on the front lines of healthcare, this has always, you know, been our mission, right? That health is something that people experience as a right and not as a privilege. And in a nation as rich and as you know, capable and innovative as ours, I think we should be global leaders in developing and implementing a world that works for everyone. And so I do encourage people to stay safe, continue to practice all the protocols. I remind people we are in the middle of the pandemic. It is far from over, but there is an opportunity before us to really just now confront some of our gaps and having health, health and health care be something that is a right and not a privilege. And I would follow up that with a larger context that I've been really dealing with and revisiting some things that I haven't dealt, uh, visited in a while. And part of this was spurred by the horrible death of George Floyd. And one of the things I see in that response is something that I'm hopeful about. And uh, so I've been looking at issues of race and racism and all of that. And one of the uh, things that has consistently come out for folks who are activists in this, and I'm forgetting her name, but it's a, a woman in her 70s who first did the blue-eyed, brown-eyed experiments with kids in, in school to understand what racism does. And her point is, she does something where she, uh, she says she's at the college campus and said, how many of you are members of the white race? And folks stood up, how many of you are this, this, and this? And after they're all standing, she says, how many of you are members of the human race? Sit down, and they all sit down. And her point is that race is socially constructed. She points out that everybody originated um, out of Africa around the equator. And as, it, as people moved, their skins got lighter as an adaptation to the climate. So I think the, the hopeful thing is that we can be, all begin to see ourselves as members of the human race. And I think that Deborah touched on something. So if one, this pandemic really illustrates it. So the first case in Detroit was probably, I don't remember. I mean, I never figured out who it was but it was someone probably white because they had traveled abroad. But, but when it came back, the population that it disproportionately affected was African-American. That could easily be reversed. The point is that we all live on this planet, in this country, in communities together, and we're connected in ways that we don't always recognize. <clears throat> and this pandemic really illustrates that if one group is is disproportionately affected at some point everybody else will be will be affected as well and that it really started somewhere else 
And because of those vulnerabilities that were already in the African-American community in particular, they were at higher risk. But the risk came from elsewhere. I think the lesson that we can really learn while we, as Deborah said, were sheltered in, have the time to reflect, is really reflect on who we are as human beings and members of the human race, and that we really are connected to each other. And that um, when we all do, when one group, when the most marginalized is doing well, we probably all do much better. Um, so we're connected in ways that are really important. And I think this is a great time to revisit that. We've had some two horrible things happen in our country in the last several weeks. <clears throat> and some of it has been, well, it's all been very distressing. And you can lose hope, but there are glimmers in that um, that should make us all feel hope of what's possible if we worked collectively to address these issues. Well, uh, thank Spartans you. will. Yeah, that's right. Spartans, Spartans will. will. And I want <laughs> people to also know that they have an opportunity. The, the task force meetings are publicly viewable. Yep. This is a completely transparent process. Michigan has been at the forefront of transparency. So if listeners want to chime in and they want to hear and see what's happening, they can do that. And they can and go those, to the, yeah. Those, if you go to the website, they're particularly on Friday. So if you go to the website, first of all, you can hear the recordings of previous meetings, any documents that are posted. But if you go to, the, I, and I'm thinking it's coronavirus.gov or something like that, but you can Google it in some way and find it. And you'll find when the meetings are happening. And the, the public ones usually are happening on Fridays. But Deborah, thanks for bringing that up. Yeah, because yeah. it's really an opportunity for the public to be engaged. And the other thing I, I um, you know, hold the governor up and her admin team for is the transparency in which all this is conducted. I think before we came on the air, Deborah really talked about how Michigan is one of the states, one of the three states in the forefront at looking at the problem in African-Americans. And sometimes when you look at something, it can look like you're not doing well, but it's a proactive thing to say, let's get, let's get real information so when we know where we are and then begin to go look at what we can do. So yeah. here, great here. state I think, to be in. Yeah, I think, Randy, if people just Google the Michigan Coronavirus Task Force on racial disparities, they'll, they'll get oh, there. I so I want to yeah. thank you both again for a great conversation and for being on the, the program today. Russ, Thanks good to talk to you. Thanks for having us, Yeah. yeah. Thank you. I look forward to connecting with you on other stuff again. It's always a lot of fun talking (laughs) with both of you, so thank you. (laughs) That was Randy Rash. He's Dean of Michigan State University's College of Nursing, and Deborah Verholden is an epidemiologist and the Associate Dean for Public Health Integration at Michigan State University and the Director of the Flint Center for Health Equity Solutions. And I'm Russ White. This is MSU Today.